Hello world and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. Um, we are so happy to be back here with you this week. I am joined by my usual panel of co-hosts, um, starting with me. I'm Alex and I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, where uh, we are uh, partially underwater this week. And also there's a big sinkhole <laughs> in my yard that I should probably uh, call somebody about, but uh, we're getting through yeah, it. I was going to... I was going to ask how you were doing with all the rain down there. Is it like, is, is your basement just a disaster? Um, the other morning, my basement was the worst that it's ever been. Yes. Um, it's, Ooh. it's better now, but it was, uh, uh, tough to wake up to. Now that's bunch of little, cold. bunch of little mice in a pan with a tiny ore. Just <laughs> no, that sinkhole. Is that Friday stepping outside? <laughs> oh, that's not nice. Actually, I, I was looking at it and the, the nice neighborhood cat normal, came up to me and uh i did have to keep her from jumping into the sinkhole so normal is very sweet she, uh, uh she is not bright though <laughs> yeah so that's what she's uh she's a delightful gal though yeah so that's what's going on here um i'm joined first of all by my brother cody in illinois cody how are you good um we didn't get quite as much rain and i don't have a cat so really haven't had uh any of your problems this week um yeah just kind of kind of riding the storm out right now enjoying the uh, last vestiges of summer before uh work for me gets just completely batshit insane for another six months so fantastic the minutes and i'm um, also joined as usual by jack john in indianapolis what's up jack john i'm doing good it's been raining overnight which hasn't been too much of an issue which means i get to grill out during the day and I don't have a basement, but I do have a crawl space. Uh, but if I don't check it, it's not flooding. And that's what I'm continuing to tell myself as a homeowner. Mm-hmm. How uh, many bones are going to float out of that crawl space? <laughs> Say, so you may want to... Look, I haven't seen rabbits in a while. I don't know where they went. <laughs> so, also, uh, Jack John, while we're talking to you, I want to address your fantastic shirt that says <laughs> yes. Wisconsin. That is a good yes. shirt, yeah. This is official T Pain so, Twitch merch. I, I was gonna say, is that actually a T Pain product, or uh, do they yeah. just have to give him a penny anytime somebody <laughs> says Wisconsin? I was I was in T Pain's Twitch channel one day, and I was like, "Fuck it, I want T Pain merch. This is the kind of thing that I spend my money on." And my <laughs> little claim to fame is T Pain then shouted me out and just went, "You motherfuckers aren't buying my shirts enough." <laughs> Did you wear that to Wisconsin when you were there? I did not. Uh, I don't know why I didn't. I'm now hating myself for that. Well, I'm because, sorry. Well, I feel, I feel without, like every without a mansion, without a mansion, the joke doesn't work. I feel like every local would have just looked at me and gone, "You know, that's not how we spelled the state, right?" <clears throat> oh, that's that's not how that's spelled there. You know, you might wanna you might wanna take that back to the the factory there and uh, get that get that fixed because that's not. Uh, that's not because they've never heard T-Pain. Oh, absolutely not. Or or I would have just got locals that think I'm a Badgers fan, and that's worse to me, and I don't want to talk Wisconsin <laughs> sports with people. You could have gotten a taste of their um, their signature passive aggressiveness in Wisconsin, which my friends and I had gotten a taste of when we were in Milwaukee a couple months ago. Lovely place, though, Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Door County is beautiful. So I wanted to, I wanted to address something else. Um, so we heard again from our good friend Jeremy. Um, he hit us up at here's a mailbox at gmail.com. And uh, we, we were talking about weird uh, bumper stickers. Um, I don't remember what we was it last week? At it was some last point. Week. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
And Jeremy, uh, he found quite the doozy here, and um, I sent it to the two of you. Um, so so let's let's talk about this. First of all, we are dealing with a Subaru, and mm-hmm. what we can see here is the combination of bumper stickers we have. Yes, Jack. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I just, I'm I'm ready to jump in on this because there's <laughs> a lot here. There's a lot going on. A lot to unpack. So first, we got the American flag. We've got uh, Trump, Pence. Make America Great Again. That's a common one. You got the uh, classic Don't Tread on Me. Yeah, you... so far all this tracks. Yeah. Then you get to the, this is all on the right. Then you get to the middle. Uh, fake quotes will ruin the internet. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. With... <laughs> ha, 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 ha. A classic ha, online just, humor. That, but that tied... was a real funny meme 12 years ago. <laughs> but tied with the previous like two is just like, what are you doing? Yeah. So um, I know what misinformation is. Oh, and also I don't. <laughs> you get over to the opposite side of the license plate, and here's where things start to get a little little bit odd. First, we've got a Yang 2020, which <laughs> the, the Yang Trump guy is an interesting archetype of guy. This is like the guys from from Elon Musk's mentions sort of guys, I guess, like conservative yeah, tech guys. I mean, I- yeah, but I mean, Andrew Yang, while being a complete doofus, <laughs> is not conservative, really. Yeah, I don't know what he so, is really. He's just, <laughs> I don't he's think just, Andrew Yang knows what he is. He's just a guy, really. <laughs> That's what he is. <sighs> and and above that, we have and and the picture quality is not super clear. Am I correct in interpreting it? Is this um like a a cartoon babe with her with her knockers out um also dresses like a cyber soldier with a big gun is that what we're looking at here yeah yeah i am i'm wondering if this is from like a comic book or something but like looking at it that's i don't think that's tank girl i don't know who that is yeah it's it's like like a, a like body pillow waifu with jugs but like also is in like camo gear yeah, but also okay. on first glance, I thought it was a koala because of the headset that the girl is also wearing. He's a furry. Yeah, maybe. a koala holding an AR-15 would be would be way crazier. It, <laughs> but also to add to this weird anime waifu girl, there's also just like an Overwatch sticker in the top right that you can't quite make out. I so didn't the even dude's catch a game. He's a gamer. That I probably so, I probably could have guessed that already, but that does make yeah, a lot of sense. My, yes. There's also yeah, cropped I, out an NRA logo, which is is obvious as well. Yeah, right. I was gonna address um, something that I started seeing the last two years or so that I did not notice the presence of before. But like, if you hang out on Twitter or anywhere where people discuss politics, what is up with all the Nazi weebs now, dude? Like, was that always <laughs> a thing? That is such an odd combination. But like, I see so. Many, like, you know, hard right Trumpist people with fucking anime avatars. I'm like, what are you doing? You'd think they'd be more to the Rising Sun flag, but no, they're going for the Nazi flag. I don't get it. I thought that was literally just Ian Miles Chong that was capable (laughs) of doing something so goofy. But no, apparently it's spreading. Yeah, the anime Nazis, they've been a thing for a long time, but they used to be more, like, contained to, like, the Chan forms yeah. but now like they, they seem to have bled out into real life a bit but that is like i i that is crazy when you see someone like um disingenuously lecturing someone on what like 
you know, trying to back up whatever their repugnant belief is by saying, like, well, this is what real people believe. You don't, you know, you're, you're, you know, you don't, you don't understand what real people like. And then you go to their page and it's just like, you know, pictures of, of, of like half naked cartoon girls who may or may not be of age. And it's just like, I don't know if you know exactly what's going on in the real world either. I don't know if you've left your house. It seems like... It seems like you have a very rich fantasy life, and yeah. I think it may be bleeding over into Twitter a little bit. This guy types, we live in a society while chugging Mountain Dew and smashing Doritos. The the best were the guys a few weeks ago, and I don't, I have not seen them before or since, but apparently there's a pocket of people, they're fighting with someone I follow, um, I think a few people that I follow, who are literally making the argument that like having friends, going outside and hanging out with friends in the real world is gay. They were saying this, and it, it it seemed like they were serious. That's like they they later made drinking a beer with friends out to be a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> the the hyper the get people help. who really get do not not toxic masculinity <laughs> as in doing like actually performing toxic masculinity, but like getting into the theory and everything and all the philosophy about what exactly a man yeah. should do and that's typically what leads you to such weird conclusions that really i i want to see a wider social experiment on what like how is this doing this to you people like is your tether to reality really that weak that you read this shit and it actually like resonate i just i don't get it they, they need some more seed oil that's what i think um <laughs> All the yeah, beef, a certain kind of seed oil, maybe. All the, all the beef tallow is rotting their brains. <laughs> so there's that. Um, yeah, we, we could analyze what's going on with this bumper sticker all we want. But I think at the end of the day, you know, Occam's razor, the, the simplest answer is, you know, often the correct one. Simplest answer here is this guy is a fucking loser. So enjoy that, <laughs> pal. What I, 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 I want to meet this person, but from a distance. Like, I want to see how they interact with other people, because I'm sure... Yeah. They're the aggressor ten times out of ten yeah, in every I, conversation. I wanna I wanna watch an interview with this person from the safety and privacy of my own home. Yeah. <clears throat> um so something else we, we wanted to uh, touch on. Uh our friend Pookie actually sent us an update um on the story that uh Mitch told on here a couple weeks ago. If you recall, um he was our special guest the other day, um and discussed uh, a story of the beloved the uh sorry beloved uh chance the snapper the humboldt park lagoon alligator in chicago and it just so happened pookie sent us an update um from revolution brewing in chicago the wonderful chicago brewery remember the that week in summer 2019 where everyone's in chicago was preoccupied entirely with an alligator sighted in the humboldt park lagoon well here's a shot of chance the snapper today alongside our buddy frank Alligator uh, Frank says he's doing well and occasionally longing for Italian beef sandwiches like everyone else who ever spends a week here. Um, And then they announced they are uh, re-releasing the Humboldt Gator um, beer, which I believe Mitch mentioned. um, And it has a picture of Chance the Snapper, and it appears he is doing quite well. So um, a very very wholesome update for all of you. Chance the Snapper is still with us, uh, still being well taken care of. And if you're living in Chicago, check out some of Revolution Brewing stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the description they give of that humble gator looks delicious, and I want some. Yeah. So yes. I'll have to see it, if it, I can get any in the area, and if not, I may be like 
PayPaling Mitch twenty bucks to grab it. <laughs> and to be clear, you mean you mean the beer and not Chance the Snapper himself. He's getting, yeah, no, get, I I real I sincerely hope that I can't grab him around here because he's not supposed to be here. Yeah, the, the um, alligator meat is delicious, but we have a bit of an emotional yes. attachment to Chance the Snapper. So yeah, I no longer will eat alligator burgers. Uh, our hearts go out to Chance. So is, yeah. Well, I won't eat alligator meat made out of chance. We'll put it that way. Sure. <laughs> but if I go to the state fair and they have gator on a stick, you better believe I'm gonna get a gator Ooh, on a stick. That's that's the next thing to break Midwest fairs is um, deep fried southern meats. You get some gator. Well, get some I mean, crocodile. They, they actually, um, at the Illinois State Fair, you can typically get gator on a stick, and it's delicious. Oh god, that, that was always our first stop when we got there. Yep. Mine's always the donut burger, but I'm a fat ass, so. <laughs> We have more time. We should just talk about the fair. If <laughs> so, if you're ever in my Twitch channel and you mention fair food, I will lose track of everything else and talk about fair food for an hour. I swear to God. Well, we just did yeah, that maybe three days week, ago. Close out the summer. So we just did that this week with just food in general. Oh God. Got to the point where several of us were just saying names of foods <laughs> in the chat, and yep. uh, yeah, and it worked. Um, Stream hungry. We had one other bit of business we wanted to address before we get into it. Um, our good friend John JF one two five John Fleming um, on uh, on Twitter he uh, appeared in one of our theme episodes, the uh, Pablo Sandoval thirst trap uh, toilet thirst trap adventure. Um, the wonderful John Fleming, um, he and his blog STL Bullpen, which I used to occasionally write at, put out a, a very good article this week. Um, Entitled, You Absolutely Do Not Have to Respect Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt's Decision. Um, that is referencing the fact that they are only the only two Cardinals players unable to make the trip to Toronto for their series against the Blue Jays because outside of a backup catcher who does not matter, um, they are the only two players who did not get vaccinated. Um, John put this out. Article was great. Got a lot of uh, very stupid people with no social skills mad at him. <laughs> So definitely read the article, and yeah. if you if you want to entertain yourself with some delightful freaks, well, not delightful, but freaks, uh, check out his <laughs> mentions as well, uh, where you'll you'll see yeah, uh, and, you'll see a couple of us pop up too, real yeah. hard if you can. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, by the way, uh, first of all, yeah, I want to echo your sentiment. It is a wonderful article. Great job, John, and uh, just go there, show him some support. Uh, also, before we get off bumper stickers completely, I forgot that I saw a uh, another psycho pair of bumper stickers this week that I wanted to tell you guys. Um, I think this was yesterday, actually. So on one side of this person's back glass, there was the, the thin blue line, like pro cop bumper sticker. But right in the middle, there is a big graphic of a guy putting on a ski mask with a uh, no ca uh, no face, no case underneath it. <laughs> I'm like, I think you were permeating conflicting ideas here. You can't have both. <clears throat> like, it is impossible. Like, that... <laughs> that, that second one, just <laughs> hearing that one, like, as a, as a criminal defense attorney, just sends a shudder down my spine. Like, that's, that's the kind of thing I'm going to see in evidence eventually. <laughs> that, that sounds like a piece of masked intruder merch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe his, his point of view is that he respects the, the work that, that the police do, but uh, fair game is fair game, and if, the, if, if, there's, no, if there's no witnesses, then uh, there's nothing for them to do. Like a, uh, like a uh, Mr. Policeman, I gave you all the clues type of situation. <laughs> uh, yes, if there's no witnesses, God. I did nothing wrong. The way I attack every stealth mission in a video game. If everyone's dead, I'm still stealthy. <laughs> 
So that's what's going on. Nobody our... alive saw me come in here. Exactly. So that's what's no going face, on no in, uh, in in our worlds this week. Um, so without further ado, um, you know we can talk about ourselves all night, but we're we're really here to talk about some guys, and we've got quite the slate this week. So so let's get right into it, Jack, uh, if you would please. Oh uh, yeah, I think I remember. It's uh, the guys. Thank you. <clears throat> so I am up first this week. Um, and I've been I've been sitting on this topic for a while, waiting for the right moment. Jack looks so happy. I'm rubbing and my hands in excitement for this. I think that moment is finally here. And fair I wa- have absolutely no fucking clue what any of this is, but I've seen how excited Jack oh. is, and it's just getting well, me secondhand uh, psyched. I will say, part of my joy in preparing this is trying to explain what any of this is I- to you. <laughs> Um, it's it's the perfect idea is that you and i both know what you're saying cody has no idea what the fuck is happening well and and some of you out there may be catching on that's right this week we're heading back to the wild and wacky world of pro wrestling jack john is doing a celebratory dance um i know a lot of times we do these at the end but um (laughs) so but this is going to be a fun one um it's wrestling in the 90s so everyone is at least partially aware so the reason why I'm doing it this week, finally, there was a major historic moment in the wrestling world a few days ago as Vince McMahon stepped down from his role as CEO of WWE. Um, he ended his career mired in scandal. Um, can think of no better way for him to go out, um, the most fitting way. <laughs> and so that's yeah, se- I, I honestly, I could not believe that that got Vince McMahon to step down because the shit he got accused of. Sounds like stuff that Vince McMahon would probably look at a camera and go, yeah. So what? That's kind of what he tried to do at first, but yeah, uh, he he came out on Raw like twice and was just like, "I'm still here forever," and then left like right after all the news yeah. broke. Like he gave zero fucks, but apparently it's getting too hot for him to ignore <laughs> anymore. So this seems like a good jumping-off point to discuss the time period that truly took McMahon from successful promoter to the most successful promoter of all time. The Attitude Era and the Monday Night Wars, which took place in the mid to late 90s. So, obviously, pro wrestling is predetermined. The storylines are written. This has been common knowledge for a few decades now. But today, unlike uh, Nick Gage and New Jack in previous episodes where um, they were guys for their actions both in and out of the ring, this week we are focusing purely on a guy within storyline. Which may sound silly, but the bigger point that I'm make, uh, making this week is that the style and environment of pro wrestling in the Attitude Era pushed the two major companies to write such increasingly outrageous stories that the era basically becomes a guy itself. And this is a hard question, but when I evaluated which wrestler best represented the preposterous nature of this time period, I could find no better answer than Ray Trailer Jr., AKA the big boss man. And specifically, I didn't know if he was going to have a nickname or if that just was his nickname, Ray trailer. <laughs> Jr. And he's, he, he's just a trailer. Like that's, he's just dressed as a trailer. I mean, going after, uh, such wrestlers as avalanche, who was just a big fat guy. Yeah. <laughs> and Earth- well, in mass transit, we've already talked about yes. and, and earthquake, who is also a big fat guy. <laughs> so- who is also avalanche. And, um, which one was tugboat? Was that the same guy? That is the same guy three times. Fantastic. Um, so spe- <laughs> specifically, we will be talking 
we, we got a lot to get through before we get to this. So, so, so hang in there with me. But how, how we're going to top this all off is we will talk about the surreal year of uh, storylines that the big boss man found himself in in 1999 at the absolute peak of the madness. So let's talk first about Trailer himself. He was born in 1963 in Georgia. Uh, his first career was actually not as a pro wrestler. Uh, he worked first as a prison guard, a fact that would go on to heavily influence his uh, wrestling career. His debut in wrestling came with Jim Crockett Productions in 1985. This was still in the Age of Territories. We've talked a little bit about this on the show before. Jim Crockett was a prominent southern company based out in North Carolina. Trailer breaks in as a jobber, a guy who is paid basically to just lose matches to bigger stars under his real name. Um, Every time I hear that, it sounds dirty. Yeah. But (laughs) for good reason. Fortunately for Trailer, um, in Jim Crockett Productions, he had around him several legends of the wrestling business with a track record of launching careers. The first one to see Ray's potential was Dusty Rhodes. Um, Rhodes repackaged Ray as Big Bubba Rogers and paired him with Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. Jim Cornette, I believe we mentioned on the show a couple times, he was something of a kingmaker in the Southern Territories back in the day. So that is a bill you could see on a marquee at either a wrestling ring or I'm guessing one of those country Western bars Mm -hmm. like the Blues Brothers wound up in. Yeah. I mean, a a lot of these shows were in like bingo halls and armories and and really sketchy places like that. So not far from the truth. So in in 1987, uh, Jim Crockett, he purchased the UWF. Ray spent time as a regular with that promotion under the moniker The War Machine. Which we should note, not Herb Abrams' UWF, a different UWF. The normal one. Yes. Um, So Ray was already a rising star, and in 1988, he takes the next jump by signing with the WWF, which, as the older territory system was dying out, WWF was coming into its own as one of the prominent national promotions. So this era of WWF was kind of odd because they were they were leaving the era of super cartoonish stars behind, but like there's still a ways to go before the Attitude yeah. Era. It was a transition period. Yeah. Um, Vince McMahon's big thing back then was coming with very like one trick pony gimmicks, like usually based <laughs> on someone's job, which proves some truly ridiculous outcomes, including the 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 infamous widely hated Repo Man. Yes. Um, <laughs> And then the early '90s almost killed pro wrestling just with how bad it was. And Cody, here's one. I love that he creates. I love that he creates wrestlers like some places create strippers. Yeah. Well, yeah. Go ahead, Alex. I'm sure you're going to say this. Well, Cody, here's another one you'll like. Um, Doctor Isaac Yankum, whose character was an evil dentist, portrayed by Glenn Jacobs, who would go on to become the massive star Kane, and then become the mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee. But I digress. Who would then become a massive chode in his own right. Yes, he, he is in fact a chode. But with that Ray... sounds like a fucking Muppets character. <laughs> it was awful. It did not go yeah. over well. These were not successful gimmicks, I should add. Yeah. Repo Man widely despised. Um, you also, I think that's also, I think around the era where the Honky Tonk Man was like at his peak, which was just Elvis ripoff and he couldn't play guitar and everyone fucking hated him. Yeah. But with Ray Trailer, I mean, it made a lot more sense. They they dubbed him the Big Boss Man, and they based his character around his previous career as a prison guard. Um, at first, they portrayed the Big Boss Man as a heel. Um, to make a name for himself, they would often have him handcuff his opponents to the ring ropes after the match had ended and beat them with nightsticks. Um, 
they then put him into. They couldn't a, just call the actual cops in to do that. <laughs> they uh, then put him into a tag team with the one man gang, who I won't say anything else about because Jack, I believe he may be a topic you cover one day. He's but, he's on my list to eventually cover, yeah. and I can't wait. Their tag team was unfortunately called the Twin Towers. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> they had some really big angles. They really went downhill in two thousand one. They had some big angles. In in particular, they faced the Mega Powers, which was the tag team of Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man Randy Savage. Um, They were also an early feud for the Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. That was their opponent at WrestleMania V. So all the while during this big boss man, he maintained a solo feud against Hulk Hogan as well. Um, In 1990, they turned the big boss man face, uh, made him a good guy. Um, He was pitted against the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase, Jake the Snake Roberts, and his former villainous manager Slick. Like he he was a big star in big stories. Fans embraced him, and he continued to be featured in major angles against such other legends as Bobby Heenan and Mr. Perfect. 1992. Here's where t- things take a turn for the South. 1992, WWF wrote an angle where the big boss man would be pitted against a new heel wrestler they were really excited about. A guy named Kevin Wachholz, a.k.a. Nails. A sub-guy in his own right in this story. Okay. Oh. Wachholz was a huge, scary-looking guy from Minnesota with some background in amateur boxing who wrestled across various small promos throughout the 80s. Like a shitty proto version of Brock Lesnar. Like, with a, Look, a fraction I, I of the talent. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, without any of the things that make Brock Lesnar actually amazing. Yes, take everything good about I'm Brock Lesnar away, you the, get nails. The idea of a professional fighter from Minnesota makes me laugh so fucking much. Like, I mean, Brock Lesnar is from Minnesota. And Shelton Benjamin. Yeah, imagine, but, I yes. know, but like, they were the Minnesota I, feel like the, group. I feel like the pre-fight, like, <laughs> trash talk goes down in quality. Like, oh, I'm going to kick your ass there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you better watch out. going to going to smack you around a little bit now. <laughs> so the WWF, they eventually bring in Wachholz. They repackage him as Nails, an ex-convict who wrestled in an orange prison jumpsuit. His first storyline was a feud against the big boss man. Seeking revenge because he claimed the big boss man had abused him in his previous line of work as a corrections officer while Nails was serving a prison sentence for crimes which he was railroaded for. And to be clear, big boss man was the good guy in this storyline. <laughs> so so there, there was something to this storyline. I mean, there, there was something with it. Yeah. The problem, though, Nails fucking sucked. He was, an, <laughs> yes. he was an awful wrestler and no better as an actor. He wasn't good at anything at all. Um, the, the feud lasted all throughout the latter half of 1992. It ended at Survivor Series with a nightstick on a pole match. Uh, <laughs> a, bit, okay. a bit of foreshadowing because uh, ridiculous pole matches became an yeah. unfortunate common feature yeah. of the Attitude Era and a favorite of a particular loathsome writer from that era who yeah. we will talk about. So if you don't know what a pole match is, which I assume 99% of people listening here don't, it's basically like you have a specific item on a 10-foot pole tethered to the corner of a ring. And depending on the rules and the era, you either win the match by grabbing that item, or once you grab that item, it is now a weapon you can use legally. (laughs) Right. So, the feud didn't work. Um, They kept trying with nails. They put him up against all kinds of big stars. He fought Bret Hart, the Ultimate Warrior, the Undertaker, Sergeant Slaughter, and just none of it ever got over. 
Like, nobody liked I, Nails at all. I wonder if he was, like, somebody's nephew or something, and that's why they kept trying. Because it seemed like a lot of guys, they probably would have, like, given up considerably before that. Uh, especially in Vince McMahon's wrestling, the key to being a superstar is being above, like, six foot six. Yeah. And you can get a career for, like, five <laughs> years with just being tall and big. Yeah. Look at the great Kali. Um, Nails' career with WWF ended in an incident in Vince McMahon's office in late 92, where a contract dispute led to Nails jumping across the desk and strangling his boss. McMahon was uh, saved perhaps only by a passing Bret Hart who heard the commotion and broke it up. Nails, though, would reappear later as a witness for the prosecution in one of Vince McMahon's other most infamous moments, the steroid trials. Nails uh, uh, testified against McMahon and his testimony came across as so bitter and not credible that some speculated actually played a role in McMahon being acquitted. So Nails uh, fucked absolutely everything up everywhere he went. Yeah. <laughs> the, the trial where Vince McMahon showed up in a neck brace. Yeah. As, as for the big boss man, Nails was such dead weight and the feud was such a failure that it really did set him back. Um, at the Royal Rumble in early 93, he was pinned clean in a match against Bam Bam Bigelow. And he quit and left to go work for the WWF's main competition, WCW, after that. So, the boss man's time there was pretty uneventful. But what was not uneventful was what was going on around him. So, we're going to check back in with the big boss man in a little bit. But I have got to get through some wrestling history to properly set the stage for this. Side quest. Yeah. So, this period in the 90s with these two companies, would permanently alter the landscape of the business. And less people think, like, it's just wrestling and it's just silly. I mean, this is one of the biggest entertainment industries in the country. Yeah. I mean, these are billion-dollar industries. So by the mid-'90s, the old territory system had pretty well dissipated, and the WWF and the WCW emerged as the two companies standing tall. They were run, respectively, by two rich egomaniacs who hated each other. For the WWF, that was Vince McMahon. For the WCW, that was Ted Turner. The WWF's big advantage at first was the creation of Monday Night Raw, a weekly show on national television. WCW had been struggling a bit. Uh, fans, they weren't liking the product about the, around that time. They felt it was ridiculously corny. What helped turn things around was, ironically, two huge failures. One was, in 1993, the infamous debut of the Shockmaster. Yeah, uh, they had been hyping up this 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 cool new wrestler who was going to appear and team up with the faces against uh, against the heels, and in a live segment when he finally debuted, they revealed the Shockmaster, and what audiences uh, were shown was first of all the Shockmaster was a big fat guy in a cape and a stormtrooper helmet covered in glitter. He burst through a wall, tripped over the bottom, uh, fell flat on his face, and the helmet went flying everywhere. And in the background, you could hear Davy Boy Smith uh, saying out loud, Oh God, he fell on his fucking ass! <laughs> One of the all-time... And his pants fell off and he farted <laughs> yeah, yeah. a bunch of girls. <laughs> Honestly, though, like the encapsulation of like that running joke for us was the Shockmaster debut. This is goes down as maybe the all-time greatest wrestling blooper. Yes. That and Titus O'Neil sliding under the ring. Yes. Sliding uh, under the ring. Yeah. The other thing, they had been pushing Sid Vicious as their new big star with limited success. But in late 93, Sid Vicious got into a real-life fight with colleague Arn Anderson in a hotel room in England that culminated with the two of them stabbing the shit out of each other with scissors. 
<laughs> um, so, I'm surprised that the, uh, uh, what the fuck is that asshole's name? Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols didn't uh, <laughs> sue the hell out of them for using Sid Vicious. <laughs> I guess they didn't. He doesn't like to let money go. <laughs> So Arn Anderson was tighter with WCW management than Sid, and so Sid took the heat and he got fired. So WCW, they kind of were forced to regroup and uh, put the older established stars back out front, namely Ric Flair. Along with this, they started flexing Ted Turner's money by hiring away uh, established stars from the competition, namely Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. At that point, WCW was readying for a war, while WWF still mostly brushed them aside and didn't really take them seriously. In 1995, WCW booker Eric Bischoff pitches to Ted Turner that they need a weekly show on national TV to compete with Raw. Bischoff was surprised when not only did Turner oblige, he gave him a primetime slot on Mondays on TNT directly overlapping with Monday Night Raw. And thus... I was going to say, that's a gutsy move by Turner. It absolutely was, yeah. Head to head, let's fucking do this instead of putting it on like Thursday night or something. I mean, a lot of it was spite. I mean, Turner and McMahon just absolutely hated each other's guts. But thus, WCW Monday Nitro was born. And it was obvious right away that the war was on. WCW had secretly signed away top WWF star Lex Luger without telling them. And Luger made a shocking surprise debut on the first episode of Nitro. A couple months later, WCW... secretly signed a Lunger Blaze, who at the time was the WWF Women's Champion. Blaze made a surprise debut on Nitro, where she took off the actual, literal WWF Women's Championship belt and threw it in the trash on live TV. (laughs) Shots fired. Another advantage they had was that Nitro was live while Raw was pre-taped, so they could pull shenanigans such as finding out the results of matches on Raw and spoiling them on Nitro before they aired. Now later, obviously, <laughs> now later, obviously, so that would backfire horribly um, in the later stage of this when um, they spoiled uh, mankind winning the WWF title with Steve Austin interfering, and fans were so intrigued by this that in mass they changed away from Nitro to Raw. Yeah. But that was much later. Um, yeah, a a review where they go, yeah, that'll put butts in seats, and then <laughs> everyone switched the fucking channel. Yeah. One time, WCW sneakily hired away Rick Rude from WWF, had him appear live on Nitro to trash his old company right before a segment featuring him appeared on Raw on the same night. I mean, these were the kinds of shenanigans that were going on. The WWF, uh, they were able to improve their product, though, and in the early days, uh, the companies went back and forth in the ratings. From 96 into 97, though, the scales tipped for WCW. In the biggest hit yet... They, they put a plan into motion where they signed Scott Hall and Kevin Nash from WWF. Uh, the two of them, they start appearing as disruptive heels, calling themselves the Outsiders, and teasing that they have a third man on their side who they'll eventually reveal when the time is right. At the Bash of the Beach pay-per-view, Nash and Hall reveal their ally as Hulk Hogan comes down to the ring, hits his signature leg drop on the good guy Randy Savage, his old friend, then cuts a bitter, scathing promo on the fans in attendance. Hogan, he had struggled to get over in WCW as his classic face character, so WCW did the unthinkable. They turned Hogan heel, they created his new persona, Hollywood Hogan, and placed him into a new stable with Nash and Hall called the NWO. Which at this point that, in history that was like seems unprecedented. Just, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't know wrestling nearly as well as you yeah. two, but that still, to me, at, at the time, I imagined that was just unthinkable. It would be like John Cena coming out today and going, you know what? Fuck Make-A-Wish. I hate kids with cancer. And, like, that level of real vitriol hate coming down on Hulk Hogan. It would be like, it would be like David Ortiz signing with the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this act was red hot with the fans. Um, also during this era, Sting was repackaged from a chill surfer guy to a face paint wearing Enigma based on the comic and movie The Crow. That was super popular. Um, 96 also saw the debut of Goldberg, who was booked as an unstoppable monster whose undefeated streak lasted all the way through 1998. So Goldberg was a cool wrestler, but I'm like, why did you, why did you call him Goldberg? That's his name. Like what? It actually is. That's a real yeah, name. Bill, Bill Goldberg. Goldberg. I know, but like, <laughs> you're you're a wrestler. You're supposed to have a badass name based on. No, I'm Goldberg. <laughs> I want Whatever, people to know dude. I'm Jewish. Damn it. So, <laughs> something else that helped. Um, two things that coincided with each other: um, the death of kayfabe and the rise of internet message boards. And by death of kayfabe, I mean. Um, the general public all coming to understand that this was fake. Um, so on internet message boards, what became the big talk was this real life drama going on between these two companies and all the backhanded tactics that became the biggest source of entertainment. So the WWF was on their heels a bit. Um, the first thing they tried to do to fix this was to get more edgy. They saw the success of of these WCW storylines and the cult hit ECW with their edgier content. We've talked about them a bit. Um, McMahon looked around and he saw their company magazine and saw that it portrayed the sort of fresh, grittier, grungy take on wrestling that he was looking for. WWF magazine at that time was edited by a guy named Vince Russo, who today is among the most hated figures in the wrestling world. An absolutely insufferable prick. Um... Vince McMahon promotes Vince Russo onto the writing team and gives him a lot of creative influence. Russo had very little background in the business and instead was mainly influenced by trash TV like Jerry Springer. Thus began a period where the competing attempts by WWF and WCW to out-edge lord each other gave us what we refer to as the Attitude Era. Here is where we must debunk a myth about the era. Actually, two myths. One, this was not a good era of wrestling, okay? Oh, God, no. <laughs> the, the stuff at the top, and I will, I'll go ahead and acknowledge that a lot of this was inspired by going back and listening to the retro Monday Night Wars reviews by uh, uh, the Brian and Vinny show featuring Brian Alvarez, his friends Vincent Verhey and Craig Probert, uh, reviewing all this one by, you know, show by show and, and slowly losing their minds. Um, and, and they made this point quite well. <clears throat> the stuff at the top of the shows was excellent, like some of the best we've ever seen. But most of what was below it was just absolutely preposterous garbage. The second myth. Vince Russo, to be clear, he is not who we have to thank for the good stuff at the top of the shows. The stuff he wrote was the aforementioned absolutely preposterous garbage. <laughs> this era of WWF gave us such a absurd stories as just a few of the hits. Val Venus, a character based on a... Uh, his character was basically a porn star nearly getting his penis chopped off by a samurai sword-wielding Kayentai who was yelling at him the whole time, I choppy-choppy your pee-pee. Aired on national television. Um, I quit. A stable. No, I'm done. 
I you will not allow oh, you to continue yeah. oh, with this segment. No. We're, we're, we're only just scratching the surface. Uh, a stable of women called PMS and their male sex slave Meat, um, whose stories included Terry Runnels getting accidentally knocked to the floor and suffering a kayfabe miscarriage. Jesus. <laughs> Three, the, the notorious brawl... That's just awful. The notorious brawl for all, which I'd say just watch the Dark Side of the Ring episode about this. The yes. basic premise was Russo booked a tournament where the wrestlers would fight each other for real. And like they advertise as such, like telling you, hey, everything else in this show is fake. We're going to see what happens when these guys actually fight. It was an absolute disaster. Everybody looked bad for the most part. A lot of people got seriously hurt. Yeah. Multiple careers were either ended or ruined by this. Um, and it yeah. was just Vince Russo at his absolute worst. And, and the winner, Alex, what did the winner of the Brawl for All game, what did they get to do? Well, see, the guy they actually wanted to win was Dr. Death Steve Williams. But uh, he yes. got beat by Bart Gunn. Uh, Bart Gunn <laughs> knocked him out cold. And so for a while they sat on it and didn't know what to do. And eventually, in what Bart believes was punishment for this, uh, at WrestleMania they had him uh, uh, go off in a real boxing match against Butterbean. Uh, Butterbean would, of course, <laughs> knock Bart Gunn unconscious. So, that I just, was the brawl for all. That's one of those things where I just... <clears throat> I, I sit there and think, what, what did you think was going to happen? Like, how did this go in your head? Um, How did you think this was going to be okay? I, I don't understand. Another one, uh, another very tasteless one, a, a low point. Road Warrior Hawk of the of the famous Legion of Doom, who is dealing with real-life substance abuse and mental health problems. Uh, they wrote a storyline where, essentially that, that he was dealing with mental health and substance abuse problems. Um, it culminated when they had him climb to the top of the Titan Tron to threaten suicide, and Darren Drosdorf, uh, a.k.a. Draws, a.k.a. Puke, whose gimmick at this time was that he puked a lot, uh, climbed up, acting like he was going to save him, and then pushed him off, uh, kayfabe attempting to murder him. Again, national television this aired. Stories and matches frequently featured racism, sexism, ableism, um, and legitimate metal chair shots to the head were commonplace, causing countless brain damage to the wrestlers involved. It sucked. And that was just in the stands. <laughs> <laughs> In spite of all of this, WWF was able to pull ahead of WCW in the Monday Night Wars. Here's what actually happened. And I'm going to tell this in as brief of a way as I possibly can in, the, in order to keep this from going for hours. So, one of the big stars in WWF was a guy named Bret Hart, who we mentioned. Um, Bret Hart was the champion, and in the background he signed a massive deal, like a, a, a deal so big he couldn't refuse with WCW. At first, it was amicable with him and Vince McMahon. He was going to go out the classic way where he would uh, um, lose a match and relinquish the belt to a young rising star. But a couple problems arose. One, Hart found out that McMahon wanted him to lose to Shawn Michaels, one of the all-time great performers, but who at this point in his life uh, was also dealing with a lot of personal issues and was a massive, insufferable prick to absolutely everybody. And he and Hart completely hated each other. He also found out that if this was going to happen, it was going to happen in Canada, uh, specifically Montreal, where he was from. Um, and there, even though that's not the part of Canada he was from, there's some weird pride thing where... See, Bret Hart's problem was he took himself very, very seriously, perhaps to a fault. And he could not bear to lose, A, to Shawn Michaels, B, in yeah. Canada, even though it was a fake match. Yeah. And <clears throat> especially with, like, wrestling, especially in foreign countries, like, it doesn't matter, like, where you're from, like... 
Wrestling might go to Canada twice a year. Like, if you're a Canadian and you're wrestling in Canada, it's a whole match for you. So he tells Vince McMahon, like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Um, instead, like, you know, either I'll beat him or it'll, it can be a, a – I think he may have offered to have it be like a no finish or whatever. And then he'll just relinquish the belt the next night on Monday Night Raw. For obvious reasons, that was unacceptable to McMahon. That doesn't make any sense for him to do. And so what they coordinated – one of the most notorious, infamous moments in the history of wrestling that changed everything. <clears throat> McMahon, Shawn Michaels, and we still don't know who exactly was involved, but probably one or two of the writers, they orchestrated to, in the match in Montreal, Shawn Michaels would put Bret Hart into um, Hart's signature submission move, the sharpshooter. And even though Hart would not actually submit, the poor, hapless referee, Earl Hebner, would be instructed to call for the bell. In other words, they were going to screw him. As much as you can screw someone in a fake match, they were going to screw him. <laughs> and so... We need a scapegoat. You. The guy with the most thankless job in the building. This winds up happening. Bret Hart got screwed on, on, uh, on the pay-per-view. Um, it was a huge fiasco. He was shocked. Uh, he spit in Vince McMahon's face on live TV. Um... <clears throat> It was just, it was a mess. And Bret Hart obviously went straight to WCW. Um, Shawn Michaels held the belt. It exposed a couple of things. One, it just further destroyed kayfabe because like, it was obvious what had happened here. Two, it exposed that um, Vince McMahon, who up until this point had just been the announcer on the show, but it, it revealed once and for all that he was the guy running the company. <clears throat> now, you may be wondering, why would this be what helped WWF? <clears throat> Well, here's how this played out afterwards. First of all, they did fuck all with Bret Hart and WCW. I mean, they completely dropped the ball. He never seemed happy to be there. They, they didn't give him any good stories. They took their forever to put the belt on him. I mean, it was just a total failure. Meanwhile, Vince McMahon took this moment and this, this bitterness with Bret Hart and used it to transform himself into the character of Mr. McMahon, the detestable heel boss character. This coincided perfectly with the rise of a fellow named Stone Cold Steve Austin, who not long ago yeah. had won the King of the Ring tournament, cut his famous Austin 316 promo. Fans had not heard anything like that before, and he became this new, innovative, uh, anti-hero face character, the perfect foil for Vince McMahon. And they set off on one of the all-time great wrestling feuds. At the same time, we had the first appearance of Dwayne Johnson, who at first was... Uh, the character Rocky Maivia, a uh, uh, white meat babyface everybody hated, and they quickly turned him into the rock, the shit-talking heel that we now know and love. Um, there was a further development of The Undertaker and the debut of his storyline brother Kane that gave us a lot of good material. Um, and they completely, WCW completely botched um, the ending of Goldberg's winning streak. Everybody wondered um, who's the rising star who's going to beat him. Well, as it turns out, it was uh, Kevin Nash who, when the ref was looking away, hit him with a stun gun and pinned him on a pay-per-view, um, <laughs> signaling the end of, of everybody's patience with multiple characters. <clears throat> yeah. So let's check back in with our actual guy in, in this story, now that that's all <laughs> out of the way. The big boss man. He was in WCW for most of this, and for whatever reason, they had a hard time finding a place for him. I mean, he just did not do a whole lot in the mid-90s. He had a brief alliance with the NWO that never really went anywhere, and he had a brief alliance with the Steiner brothers that never went anywhere either. So in October of 1998, he jumps ship back to the WWF. 
uh, one of the first in a wave of such departures as the tides turned, which would later include Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, and Eddie Guerrero, among others. 1999 rolls around. Uh, the Attitude Era is at its peak, and the WWF wanted to get the big boss man right into some big storylines. <clears throat> Unfortunately, he would, by no choice of his own, get sucked into the worst of the late 90s madness. And the big boss man's 1999, when all was said and done, would go on to be one of the most insane, fucked up years within storyline that a wrestler has ever had. There were three infamous moments in particular. The first of which. In what seemed like it was starting things off on the right foot, the big boss man became a key member of McMahon's heel stable, The Corporation, and he feuded with The Undertaker. They would square off in the main event of WrestleMania 15 in a Hell in a Cell match. The Undertaker won the match, and all was normal until the match ended. When? Cody, do you remember the, the story that our, our grandfather likes to tell us of him and his brothers in the little rural uh, one-room schoolhouse, the trick they played on their poor school teacher where they faked and made it look like his brother Sonny had hung himself. Yes, that is one of my favorite stories of all time. The post-match angle was something very similar. After the match ended, The Undertaker wrapped a noose um, that was, much like uh, Sonny, um, was actually wrapped uh, under his arms, it was attached to the top of the cell um, around what we're and we're, believe, we're led to believe that it's around his neck. And as the cell raised, the big boss man rose up into the air along with it, writhed for a few seconds, then hung motionless from the noose in the sky. And so in the storyline, the good guy, the undertaker, has lynched the big boss man. <laughs> and I just I just sent you a picture. Have you gotten it yet? <clears throat> not yet no well what when you get it what it's going to be and what i want everybody out there to know and you can look this up this the this was the image that, that they went off the air with for wrestlemania with no further explanation was the big boss man hanging motionless from a noose in midair now of course uh he would appear on uh, uh monday night raw the next night completely unharmed <laughs> So that was the first such moment. Things did not get any more normal from there. In the summer of 1999, the big boss man found himself uh, in a notoriously rotten storyline with a guy named Al Snow. <clears throat> they would brought Al Snow in from ECW and they didn't really know what to do with him. So they thought it'd be funny to give him a pet chihuahua named Pepper. <laughs> okay. Al would frequently wrestle with Pepper in a carrier near the ring. Just a weird part of his character. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so during a Falls Count Anywhere match, the big boss man, he picked up the carrier, hit Al Snow with it, and then just hucked the fucking thing. So, <laughs> so on commentary, they did clarify that uh, Pepper was not actually in the carrier at that moment, probably so that PETA would not come after them. But still, Pepper had now become a central part of this feud. Two weeks later, the big boss man takes Pepper for ransom. <laughs> and so the next step is that he arranges a dinner. Go ahead. Cody, do you have a question so far? I'm trying to make words, but it's just, it's failing me. <laughs> well, yeah, That yeah. is the dumbest goddamn thing I've ever heard of. Well, I, hold, that hold, is legitimately hold that thought. really, really, really dumb. Hold that thought for a moment. 
Oh, boy. So the next step is that um, the boss man arranges a dinner at his hotel room uh, with Al, and Al is invited to come discuss the terms of Pepper's return. For this meeting, uh, the big boss man has prepared a very odd-looking dinner. After (laughs) After Al takes a few bites, the big boss man reveals to him that the food that he was eating, the meat, was in fact pepper. So So he did the end of Hannibal. Or Scott Tennerman must die. Whatever the fuck you want. Whatever perspective. (laughs) Whatever version of it it is. Um, So I actually went back and rewatched this scene. And it's actually even funnier than, than people remember. Even more ridiculous. So here's how it plays out is he reveals to him that it's pepper. Al Snow is obviously horrified. So the first thing he gets up and starts to panic, but I guess the, the metal chair they gave him was too small. And so the chair is stuck to his ass. And so he gets up and he goes and collapses all while a chair is completely stuck to his ass. He goes in the corner, big boss man pulls him up. Al vomits all over the bed. Big boss man rubs his face in the vomit, throws him onto the next bed. And he just fucking bounces just straight up into the floor. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh my god. <clears throat> Again, national television. So, there's more. How this feud ended, appropriately, was with an all-time terrible match at the Unforgiven pay-per-view. The iconic Kennel from Hell match. Oh my god. A match between the two... Kennel from Hell yeah, match. Where they were within a cage, and the hook was, since dogs were a part of the storyline... That there were going to be mean, angry dogs surrounding the uh, the the ring. Here was the problem with the execution of this, though. The dogs they got were like clearly not trained to act mean at all, and so they like they weren't menacing, they weren't growling or barking. They were just kind of like wandering around and just shitting and pissing all over the place. <laughs> they they cut to the dogs at one point, and the dogs are just humping. Like yeah. the dogs don't <laughs> dogs are, give a shit. Dogs are fucking each other on camera. It's it's it went as badly as it possibly could. So, per, among the worst matches of this era, which is truly saying something. Oh. oh, by the way, I did receive the image that you sent a few minutes ago, and wow, that is that yep. is just, I cannot fucking believe that. Yeah. <laughs> so this was pure, unadulterated, uncut Vince Russo writing, this storyline. So the third such moment. In the fall of 1999, the big boss man was feuding with the big show over the WWF Championship. So in real life, the Big Show's father had passed away many years ago from cancer. So the WWF thought it'd be a good story to have his father, Kayfabe, pass away of cancer during this feud on the show. <clears throat> so the Big Show, he eventually retains the title. But that's not what everyone remembers about this. What everyone remembers was one particular segment in the lead-up. So the story is that the Big Show is at his father's funeral. The scene is, he's out there, it's like the middle of the day, and they're about to lower his father's casket with the body in it into the grave. Who comes pulling up but the fucking big boss man in a car, uh, honking and heckling the big show, who is beside himself. The big boss man gets out, takes a chain attached to the back of his vehicle, and attaches it to the casket, and starts to drive away. And the poor, apoplectic, (laughs) sobbing... Big Show jumps onto the casket to try and hold it down 
and for a brief period is body surfing out of the cemetery on top of his father's casket before falling onto his ass. That is (laughs) trash like I didn't even know existed. I, I just, I can't imagine putting my name on that script. I, I just can't, I just can't fathom it. Unadulterated Vince Russo story writing, this was. But honestly, watching that scene, it's art. It, like, it's, it's trash, it, but it's fucking art. It's, it's, it's hilarious to watch now. Being a wrestling fan at the time, I cannot imagine. Oh. So. Um, that was the big boss man's 1999. Um, in 2000, the big boss man's TV time dwindled. His career sort of wound down. Uh, he appeared sporadically in the next few years, mainly as enhancement talent. Um, as for the Monday night wars, excuse me, it all officially came to a head in 2000. The WWF had a decided advantage by this point, but WCW, they did see an opening, um, Perhaps when uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin had to miss some time due to, an in- due to an injury. And they were kind of left with a couple of top heels, but no real top face. But for some reason, the WCW's move to, to try and put themselves back in the driver's seat and, and save themselves was to hire away Vince Russo for their own creative team. They, they saw beat him, join him, I guess. They I saw know. what was airing on WWF television and decided this is what we need. What followed was some of the worst, most disastrous pro wrestling product of all time. It officially sunk the ship. They hemorrhaged money, and in spring of 2001, the war ended when a destitute WCW was sold to and dissolved by none other than Vincent Kennedy McMahon. He uh, beat his competition uh, by destroying them and then buying them and dissolving them. A, 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 I hate a, it when he wins. A 2000 in WCW that to, to quickly, quickly gloss over <laughs> included two world champions, which were Vince Russo him fucking self. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and David goddamn Arquette. And like, go, <laughs> oh God. If you really want to know more about how preposterous some of this is, um, just go and, and look up some of the, the clips on YouTube yeah. of, of Brian and Vinny and Craig yeah. reviewing some of this and going completely nuts. Because yeah. like, it's hard to even explain how nonsensical the, yeah. the, 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 the stories on the show, yeah. on the show was. If, if you're pressed for time, there's a great 15 or so minute video from uh, Wrestling With Regret, which is just WCW in 2000, which is more insane than anything we've talked about here, <laughs> but like on a dumber, dumber level. So in, in 2002, uh, Ray Trailer suffered a motorcycle accident that he spent a lot of time recovering from. In early 2000, he actually wrestled for a spell in Japan. And that was the last we saw of him because, unfortunately, um, in September 2004, he unexpectedly died of a heart attack while visiting his family at age 41. Um, he was posthumously inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2016, which, in my, you know, in my opinion, what is a deserved accolade. I mean, in spite of the stupid shit they had him do in 1999, I mean, he was a big kind of underrated star for a while, um, especially in his first run. I mean, he appeared with a lot of, of big wrestlers and helped out a lot of careers. So that is the story of Ray Trailer, a.k.a. the Big Boss Man. And 
we've, we've got something special to do here. <clears throat> in lieu of a big question, what I would like to do, Cody, is mm-hmm. play a little game of, of Two Truths and a Lie. Or um, what was the show with Jonathan Frakes? What was that called? Fact or Fiction? Something like that. That's basically what we're going to do here. I What I'm going to do here is um, I am going to explain three Attitude Era WWF storylines. Two of them are going to be true. One of them I made up. And I would like for you to guess which one is the made up one. And then, then we can discuss afterwards. Do you have any questions? Okay. Nope. All right. Story number one. 29-year-old strongman Mark Henry dates 76-year-old women's wrestling icon Mae Young, who eventually falls pregnant and then gives birth to a human hand. So that's number one. Okay. Number two. A partially conclusive DNA test reveals that either Vince McMahon or Ken Shamrock could be the real father of little person wrestler Hornswoggle, and so the two have a match where the loser is legally deemed to be the father. So that's the second (laughs) That's that's the second one. Okay. Okay. Number three. Headbanger Mosh is repackaged as Beaver Cleavage, a parody of Beaver Cleaver complete with propeller hat where the hook is that he's sexually attracted to his own mother. So take, take a minute to think about it if you need. Two of those are true. One of them is a lie. Which will you choose? Okay. While you're thinking about that, I just want you to know I had to mute myself so I didn't start just incessantly laughing during that entire read. <clears throat> I am going to say I'm going to say the battle over Hornswoggle's paternity was the fake one. Let's walk through them one by one. 29-year-old strongman Mark Henry dates 76-year-old women's wrestling icon Mae Young, who eventually falls pregnant and gives birth to a human hand. That one was true. Okay. Number two. A partially conclusive DNA test reveals that either Vince McMahon or Ken Shamrock could be the real father of little person wrestler Hornswoggle, and the two have a match where the loser is legally deemed to be the father. This one, you guessed, is incorrect. I thought that was almost too self-aware of them. Like, I, I feel like they would have done that in a much trashier This one never happened. <laughs> it's a fiction. I made it up. Although it, this actually is a yeah, mishmash, was... a mishmash of a couple real storylines that came later. Yeah, um, that was where, a very where, smart lie. Where um, one where where Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero fought over the custody of uh, of Rey's son Dominic, who we watch wrestle at uh, uh, WrestleMania. The other yes. which being that... Um, We've talked about that match. Yeah. Yes, yeah. the custody of Dominic ladder match. Yeah. Um, and then also um, the, the, the tease storyline of who is, um, who is Vince McMahon's illegitimate son. For a while, it was actually teased to be Mr. Kennedy. Um, Mr. Kennedy got in some trouble behind the scenes, and so they fucked him um, and killed the storyline by having it turn out to be Hornswoggle. So that was a yes. mishmash of a couple of real storylines. <laughs> which wasn't it also like... Finley ended up being Hornswoggle's like at least like adopted parent the entire time. <laughs> I, I don't like, know. The only other Irish guy on the roster is like, all right, cool, fuck it, it's you now. So this means that number three 
Headbanger Mosh is repackaged as Beaver Cleavage, a parody of Beaver Cleaver complete with propeller hat where the hook is that he's sexually attracted to his own mother. That one is true. That one actually happened. It did not last very See, long. I, I, thought will... that, I thought that one was too psycho for you to have made up. <laughs> Only the That's dim- generally my, my strategy for those, is the craziest one is usually true. Only the demented mind of Vince Russo could come up with such a thing. In fairness, they killed that one after like two weeks because it was just, yeah. it was too <laughs> much even for them. And so with that, that is the, uh, that's the story of the big boss, man, the attitude era and the absolute insanity that was pro wrestling in the late nineties. Did anybody have any other thoughts or questions? I think you uh, right there. My thoughts are mostly why, <laughs> Like why, why why did any of this happen? But you know what? I, I'm starting to see that you can't always answer that question. Sometimes you just have to, to yeah. look at life for the wonderful ball of shit that it is. And I, uh, I think that's in evidence here. I will say, and what I love is that I know this was true timeline-wise. The reason that I love wrestling is because I learned wrestling from my sweet old tiny frail grandmother who was watching wrestling all throughout the 80s 90s and early 2000s and she described wrestling to me in the most perfect way it was her soap opera and alex just explained beautifully the soap opera of wrestling in the last 30 minutes really like there there is definitely a parallel because after a while what can you do? Like you have to start going insane with it or you're going to run out of material. Absolutely. So that's all for me. And with that, um, we transition to Cody who is up second this week. Cody, who's your guy this week? My guy this week is a fellow named Steven Kubacki. And before I get into any detail here, a couple things I want to get out of the way up front. First of all, um, I don't remember if I mentioned this while we were recording or before we started recording, but my subject tonight is very shortly to be turned into, I think, a movie, maybe a miniseries even for Netflix. And otherwise, this is a story that had really fallen into obscurity. It's like there isn't even a Wikipedia page for it, Um, but it's a fascinating story. And I thought before everyone knows it, I'd like to to use the... uh, the here's a guy privilege of uh, doing the obscure stuff and get it out of the way now. Also, uh, I want to throw out there that I did not tell you guys anything really about this topic. Normally we give, give them at least a little bit of just basic sentence long background beforehand. I did not do this because I want what happens in this story to be a surprise because it's bonkers. I can confirm that is a hundred percent correct. Yes. Okay, so Stephen Kubacki uh, was born in 1955. He's an American, and he was studying in 1978, uh, studying German and history at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. See, Stephen was an avid outdoorsman. Um, he loved mountain climbing. He'd actually done some like serious mountain climbing while studying in Europe previously. Uh, Another hobby of his in the wintertime was cross-country skiing. As such, in February of 1978, 
he set off on a solo cross-country skiing trip uh, starting out near Saugatuck, Michigan. On February 20th, 1978, he set out across Lake Michigan, which was something he had done before, skiing across Lake Michigan. That's that's a Lake Michigan is enormous. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a big trip. Yeah, that's impressive. Well, cross-country skiing is no joke. Like, these people ski for fucking ever. So, yeah, it's you got to be in shape, and it's not for the faint of heart. We've covered uh, long-term skiers before, but the last time we covered them, they were on meth. So, right. like, this is yeah. clean. Jack John, uh, table that thought. God damn it! <laughs> of course! Um, so, anyway... This is where things get weird, okay? See, the next day, some snowmobilers found a backpack and a set of skis near the lake. And they reported this find to the authorities. The authorities come. They investigate. They check the stuff out. And one of the skis was labeled as belonging to one Stephen Kubacki. Obviously, at this point, they start fearing the worst, and they send out a rescue party. Because they think, I don't know what happened here, but it wasn't good. So what the investigators found was a 200-yard trail of footprints in the snow leading up to Lake Michigan. Here's what's weird. Mm-hmm. The footprints stop once they get to the lake. That is they weird. They just stop. Yeah, that's very weird. Yeah. And the uh, trail went cold, no pun intended. Oh. <sighs> Does the no pun intended not get me out of that one? Am I still getting, I, getting I think, uh, chided for that? I think what gets you out of it is that uh, uh, it doesn't seem like you worked very hard on it. So. <laughs> no, I didn't. That, that was 100% organic. That is how I typed that sentence and then realized, oh, that could be construed as a pun. Right. That's fine. No, that was a zero-effort joke, so if you don't like it, whatever. Um, So what the authorities concluded is that he had likely fallen through the ice and died. All right. Um, Even though the ice was unbroken in the area of the footprints, as far as they could tell. Um, So they thought, yeah, that's kind of weird, but it's not like, you know, it's not impossible. You know, it's it's not enough that we're going to make a federal case out of it. Um, no further trace of Stephen could be found, and he was quickly presumed dead. Well, that's too bad, and uh, ends uh, maybe our shortest uh, Here's a Guy segment yet. <laughs> and also dullest. Why did I pick this? God, this is a shitty topic. I just froze to death. This is, this is dark. <laughs> so what we're going to do now is we're going to fast forward 15 months to May of 1979. Fast forward 15 months? Yeah. We are going to shift scenes from Lake Michigan to Barrington, Massachusetts. That is a, a ways distance away. of some 700 miles. Could like, I'm sure you could connect the two via waterway, but it seems like it'd yeah. be very difficult. So if you say table that thought, I swear to God. <laughs> no, no, I'm not okay, saying good. table that thought. Oh, okay. Thank God. Um, Stephen uh, had an aunt who lived in Barrington, Massachusetts. And this poor old lady got one hell of a shock when she got a knock at the door and who should be standing there but her nephew, Stephen Kubacki. I would also be shocked. Yeah. 
yeah. my 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 dead nephew showing up at my house isn't something that happens, um, you know, every day. So obviously she was very happy, but also her second, the second thing she said obviously was, "Where the fuck have you been? <laughs> what happened? What's going on here?" Stephen's answer was very interesting and very simple. He said. I don't know. He told the authorities that he had woken up that morning in a grassy field 20 miles away in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, with no memory of anything that had happened since the day he left on his skiing trip. So this is like, so so now we've gone from a story about a skiing trip to the intros to uh, uh, intro to an X-Files episode. <laughs> yes. Or I was thinking Twilight Zone, but yeah, similar DNA. Yeah, sure. e- either would work, yeah. 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 He wasn't even aware of how much time had passed until he bought a newspaper and saw the date. When he woke <laughs> up, he was wearing clothes that fit him, but he did not recognize. He also had a backpack, which he did not recognize, with $40 in cash, new glasses that were his prescription, more clothes he didn't recognize, including a shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin and maps and hitchhiking signs that seemed to place him at different points in San Francisco, Reno, Sacramento, Chicago, and Utah. Hmm. So what? when Steven... he's been everywhere, man, That's he's what been I everywhere. <laughs> Lord, he was born a rambling man. Um, actually, the thing is, he wasn't. He just became one, apparently. Um, yeah. <laughs> So when Stephen was reunited with the rest of his family, uh, what he told them was the last thing he remembered was feeling cold and scared of getting lost in the snow and darkness on the day that he left. Mm -hmm. He claimed to otherwise have been in great mental health. Uh, He was doing well in school. He had a job lined up after he graduated, Uh, a girlfriend that seemed to be pretty serious. Nothing that would necessarily make you think that there's some kind of impending psychotic break that's going to happen. <clears throat> Fortunately, Stephen managed to move on with his life. Um, he is still alive. He works as a psychologist in the Pacific Northwest and has authored a book on metamathematics and its applications for like explaining existence. It's a lot of metaphysics type shit. Um, another thing about Stephen that it's pertinent to remember, and I'll point this out, point out why later, is that he is very smart. Hmm. Like this kid was a really, really sharp kid. But he still maintains that he has no memory whatsoever of the 15 months he was missing. And at this point, he basically refuses to speak with anybody about it these days because basically his take is, I've told you a thousand times, I don't know anything. Like, I don't know how many times you want me to tell you I don't remember anything. I just don't. So leave me alone. Now, and and hopefully I'm not stepping on anything here and I won't, I'll, I'll keep it vague. I do have a theory about a theory that other people are going to make about what may have happened here. And, so, and I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to run through some of the most popular theories. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And then at the end, I'm going to present what I think happened here. Sure. Okay. Uh, it is not any of the popular theories, by the way. Ooh. Hmm. So 
what the fuck happened here? Yeah. I don't know. Some theorize that it has to do, we're getting into the more popular theories, that it has to do with the area in which he went missing, which is called the Lake Michigan Triangle. It connects a point in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, with two different points in Michigan, and has been linked over the years to plane crashes, shipwrecks, other unexplained mishaps, along the lines of the Bermuda Triangle. Yes, Alex? I, I prefer... Um... I prefer the the Lake Michigan uh, symbol. I think that keeps the beat a little bit better. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> symbol? Really? That's what you pulled out there? I was trying to think of random small percussion instruments. No, I, I've got one that I think might be better. Yes, I got metronome, maybe? Yeah. No. Um, how far is that from the Devil's Triangle? I hear this can also uh, lead to some mishap. Do... Uh... Do uh is a metronome um a little guy who wears uh, a very trendy pointier hat? <laughs> Cody, please save us from ourselves by continuing your story. I was gonna wait and see how long you wanted to try and dig before I continued, but if you're done, I will I will gladly keep going. I, I'm, I'm um, lower than the sinkhole in my front yard right now. Um, <laughs> not a good place to be. Yeah, but obviously this is sketchy at best. Um, because that's really dumb. <laughs> it's not Bermuda. This shit doesn't happen well, in Michigan. Also, the Bermuda Triangle is been debunked very thoroughly. As also that the reason shit happens there a lot is because that is an incredibly high traffic area yes. with some kind of unusual weather patterns. It is right. very obvious if you it's think in about the it middle seconds. of the fucking ocean, not the Midwest. I'm yeah. far more terrified of the uh, Bermuda shorts. It's very nineties. Is anyone worn? What even is a pair of Bermuda shorts? Has anybody known what they Bermuda were, shorts are for like twenty years? They're like the whole. They're like the Hawaiian shirts of shorts, but they don't really make them anymore. Oh, are they? Are they, they, they kind of like those those uh, vintage swim shorts that I just bought off of eBay? Not dissimilar, no. But they are those, not swimwear. Is the oh, thing? I say those things kick ass. Yeah, they are awesome. No, I I'm a big fan of Bermuda shorts, but you can't oh, really get them anymore. Um, others who are a little more rational say, well, there's no other explanation, but this had to be some kind of mental break. Um, you know, something had to have happened. He just kind of snapped and this is possible, but as mentioned previously, his mental health seemed fine to him and everyone around him leading up to this journey. Nothing in the belongings they found on him, uh, indicated that he sustained any kind of severe trauma. Um, also, he seemed to be getting along just fine during the time that he forgot. Like, you know, based on the stuff they found, it seemed like he was getting around okay. He had money. He got new glasses. Like, <laughs> it, it kind of seems like he, he was just, you know, being himself the whole time. I hope that when people look back at my life, when they're like, yeah, he was doing good. They're like, he had money and new glasses. <laughs> Well, you know what? Neither of those things lead me to believe that you are currently not tethered to this reality. So I mean, I haven't got new glasses in three years. I'm in shambles. <laughs> um, this kind of pokes a hole in another possible explanation, which is that it was 1978, and maybe he was just tripping balls on acid the whole time. A, a, a worthy consideration. Yeah. It, um, it has to be examined. And, of course, there are um, a certain subset of uh, gullible buffoons that think it was either an alien abduction or a government experiment of some sort. 
government aliens. Yeah, uh, and, and, and let me just say for, that for the, our the, reptilians the, episode, we'll talk about that a little <laughs> bit more. The uh, he was hanging out in DIA, and then he went missing. My my theory as to the theory that other people were going to make is that this story had like alien theorists, it, like <laughs> yeah. just written all over it. I mean, I'm yeah. sure this was just like and Christmas morning for them. I, oddly <laughs> enough, they weren't super loud about. But again, this story went away pretty quickly. Um, you know, it, it's not very well remembered for whatever reason. And, uh, so it's I, not I, one of those that they trumpet about constantly. But yeah, there are plenty. <laughs> and I may have made this point on here before, but I do want to say alien conspiracy theorists are like my favorite conspiracy theorists. For one, they're like, by and large, and I'm sure there's exceptions, they're like the least problematic of all of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There, there's kind of a hopefulness to, to them that I, yeah. I find endearing. I don't, well, I don't believe them, but... Um... Yeah, and, and also, they just have the most fun conspiracy yeah. theories. Like, yeah. I don't believe it, but it's a cool narrative. Like, if you made it a movie, I'd watch it. Yeah, I've seen Signs. I don't give a shit. Yeah. So, I, I sat and thought about this for a while after I'd typed the rest of this out, trying to come up with what I think happened, and I realized something about all of these popular explanations. Uh, there is a logical flaw in all of them. Mm-hmm. Here's the logical flaw. All of these solutions make the rather large assumption that Steven is telling the truth. <laughs> That, that is a fair point, yeah. Remember, Stephen's own reasoning for, hey, I was in great mental health, was that he was doing well in a heavy course load school, had a job lined up right after graduation, a serious relationship, etc., etc. Basically just an endless chain of commitments. And remember also that this is the 1970s, which was a much wilder time for young people. Yeah. I think it is entirely possible, nay probable, that Stephen just wanted one wild romp through the country <laughs> before he had to surrender his freedom to the corporate grind, said, fuck you guys, and just took off. He did kind of do a lap of the country before he came back and was like, I don't know what happened, man. I mean, he was on a hitchhiking trip. That's something yeah, he... young, cool people did back then for fun. Is the, is the missing detail here... Um... Is Stephen Amish, perhaps? <laughs> this does. Give, I don't think so. It's uh, as the kids would say, it's giving rumspringa. Yeah, <laughs> and because... like he was just like, you know what? I'm growing up. I haven't had strange in all fifty states. Let's <laughs> fix that. So, and because uh, Stephen is again a very smart guy. He realized, uh, also remember that he is now a psychologist and he has some understanding of how human beings react to things. Yeah. Realized that his family would likely be so glad he was alive that they wouldn't poke at his story too much. Yeah. And also that a lot of people are just plain dumb enough that if you feed them <laughs> some kind of weird story, a lot of them will just kind of run with it because it's fun. All, yeah. all good assumptions, yes. Honestly, and your theory makes the most sense. This, this guy on is top of that, smart. You're right. On top of that, it's an incredibly easy story to stick to because all you got to say is, I don't know. <laughs> all, you're, all you're responsible for, details-wise, is the day you left and the day you came back. Everything in between that is a big black pit, and no one's going to ask you for any more details because obviously you can't give them any. 
Yeah, congressmen have been showing us that if you just say, I don't remember, people will stop asking. (laughs) (laughs) So, either way, that's my theory. Either way, the story has been largely forgotten until recently when Netflix started planning a project on it. Hopefully they can shed some kind of light on what happened, but given the uh, general nature of even Netflix's documentaries, I'm not holding my breath. I hope Netflix does the exact same timeline that he gives everyone. It starts pre-disappearance and picks up immediately post-disappearance and just ends. Yeah, I mean, that would be a cool way to do it, actually. So, just, like, don't give you any information or any, like, <clears throat> like fulfillment in learning anything. Just be like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, that's the story of Stephen Kubacki, and that brings me to my big question for the two of you. See, something else I realized when I was writing all this out is that if he did make this up, he could have told them whatever he wanted. So if you went missing for 15 months and it can be either actually for this reason, but probably something you're making up, what are you going to tell people you were doing for 15 months? If you were missing, presumed dead. Well, I'm going to say that um, I, I decided uh, uh, to uh, do a binge watch of um, every television show that's ever aired simultaneously as they aired. Um, and I just kind of got, got caught up in the whole thing. Um, you know, sometimes you start binge watching some, you, you don't realize it, it sucks the time away. Um, yeah, I, I just I just kind of didn't realize where I was. And, um, you know, I, I made it. I made it all the way through and uh, woke up and realized, like, whoa, wait, it's uh, it's actually, like, uh, um, several years later. So, <laughs> And boy, did I have to pee. Yeah. My rug is we... in terrible condition. <laughs> <laughs> we... Oh, my God. We alluded to it earlier, but I think technically, like, the Great Lakes do feed out into the Atlantic. So I'm going to say I got washed away in a weird freak combination hurricane tsunami flash flood whatever and it drifted me out to sea in the atlantic and during that time i was swept up and became a part of a community of slug-like dolphin monsters who who live at the bottom of the ocean uh much further than human uh science has been able to explore i became one with their people i mated with their queen i became their king uh and i am now part slug dolphin monster how would you be part slug dolphin monster? Wouldn't your offspring be part slug dolphin monster? Look, or is there you, another when, facet to the species you when, didn't tell us about? You you sound like a complete landwalker right now. So <laughs> let me break this down for you. Uh, when you mate with the queen there of the are slug no dolphins, slurs on this show. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, get no, your I'm slime thin ass back in the pool. <laughs> I uh, I am now a slug dolphin monster king, and that's where I've been. Not bad. Wait, so n- now? See... <laughs> Look, when I was in Wisconsin, a lot of time happened in a week. Oh boy. <laughs> so, yeah, you guys both went more for entertainment value than uh, your own personal gain. So here I mean, is of the uh... ocean. That is gain. So I'm going to tell everybody uh, that 
I was away secretly producing Kanye's new album, but because of like a lot of contract disputes and NDAs, I'm not going to be credited anywhere on the album or make any money, but like I'm responsible for 90% of what you hear. And then when Rolling Stone inevitably jacks off all over it, that's going to raise my clout so much. And Kanye's not going to be able to tell you different because he doesn't remember what he had for breakfast. I mean, no one's heard Donda 2 yet, and it's been out for a year, I think, or some shit. Like, you could get away with that. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's uh, that's the kind of bizarro shit I'm on. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I just think a very fascinating topic, and I'm, I'm curious to see what culture brings us in the near future. But, yeah, I, I think that was a fun one. So, um... Thank you for that, Cody. Um, before we go any further, um, I, I do have some breaking news. Um, coming across the wire on Twitter today from uh, Richard Petty, uh, at the Richard Petty, um, official Twitter of the King, Richard Petty, NASCAR number 43. <clears throat> um, just wanted to share this with you guys. Uh, the King shared his favorite... He, he has a social media manager, clearly. The King shared his favorite sandwich with us, mayonnaise and black pepper. Has anyone tried this interesting combination? And in quotes, today's post is a photo that was taken during the 2020 pandemic shutdown. Hashtag Richard Petty. Hashtag Wayback Wednesday. Um, and this is this is the photo that was. Uh, it, probably you probably can't see, but it's. Uh, this is I looked it up. Oh, that's, that's way yeah, too much. Pepper. Okay. So um, that's so much pepper. So for Wait, those of you those of you listening so out pepper. there, if you would like to see what this creation looks like, head on over to Here's a Guy Pod because I'm about to be retweeting it onto uh, the timeline. Even if that. Also, even if that was a reasonable amount of pepper, that's still not really a sandwich. Like, yeah. <laughs> would I have would I have a black pepper and mayonnaise sandwich? You add some turkey and cheese on there, I goddamn yeah. well will. But that, I was going to say, there's... Otherwise, there's a, I'm not interested. You need a very salty cut of, like, a salami or, like, some sort of, like, heavy, like, can carry the weight of a sandwich meat in that. And it's, it's just, it's a pepper sandwich. Well, not if you're the king, Richard Petty, apparently. Al, Al Snow didn't eat that much pepper. Jesus. Now that. I like that. Um, okay, so with, with that all being said, uh, we got one more guy this week. And for that, uh, we turn to Jack John. Jack John, who's your guy this week? My guy this week is Jeffrey Erickson. Uh, born Dinga in dinga 19- Durgan. <laughs> Sorry, that was stupid. Uh, Erickson with a K. Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. So, um, you know, you might be on to something there. Can we cut that? Whoever edits it. (laughs) I like that the person who edits the (laughs) podcast asks, can we cut that? Oh, yeah, that's me, isn't it? Oops. (laughs) Uh, Born in 1958 in Morton Grove, a suburb of Chicago, to parents Jack Erickson and June Erickson, uh, we're talking about a Chicago guy. I'm I'm stepping on Mitch's turf. I'm taking the Chicago guy before he can take him. He's gonna be really pissed about that. <laughs> He's gonna send Chance the snapper after you. Yeah. Uh, but Jeffrey's parents. Uh, his father was uh, uh, worked as a middle manager for a phone company. His mom was a stay-at-home mother uh, because it was the '50s and you could get away with one income in your household. Uh, they raised two well, children. Well, that, that, that is true, but the I mean, the trade-off is that you have to live in the 50s. Yeah. The 50s sucked ass, so. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, Jack and June Erickson, they raised two children, uh, Jeffrey and then Jeffrey's older brother, Jim. And when later interviewed, uh, Jim said of their, like, upbringing that 
quote, our childhood was better than most. Which basically was just like, yeah, we were rich middle class in the 50s. We didn't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> we grew up with no problems. Yeah, and yeah. and like quite quite, you know, stereotypically, they lived very, very comfortable, what I assume to have been middle class. Uh, Jeffrey was a member of the high school swim team and would graduate from Niles West High School in 1977. From there, Jeffrey would enroll in the Marine Corps, which honestly surprised me, considering that his family was apparently rich and, like, didn't give a shit. So he was like, ah, fuck it, I'm gonna join the Marines. Back in the (laughs) day, people fucking did that. Like, people were like, this genuinely seems like a good idea, because the media wasn't as (laughs) ever-present, and they didn't know what it actually was. I want to go for a romp and kill brown people. I'm going to join the Marines, is probably honestly what he thought. Uh, But he joins the Marine Corps and excelled in marksmanship, but didn't quite take to Marine life overall and kind of quickly left the Marines just as uh, quickly as he joined them. Uh, So while his uh, military career was overall unremarkable, he would uh, essentially establish himself as somebody who was good with a rifle. Well, that's always a good sign. That's a great skill set to go out into the world with, if that's the only thing you can do. And that, our friends, is the first marker you should go, oh no. Uh, Jeff would then move back to Chicago, and one night out at a bar, he would find the person who would help change his life forever. There he would meet 17-year-old Jill Cohen, born 1964, from Niles, Illinois. Now, again, because of this era... Jill was out celebrating her 17th birthday at the bar. I mean, I know people who <laughs> well, did that. I was going to say, not unheard I mean, of still. I, I went to college at age 17. I get it. Um, uh, but there uh, she would meet Jeffrey and they would instantly um, fall for each other. Jeffrey go, would go on to be nicknaming her Gorgeous, which is um, original. Well, I mean, that's that's a better nickname than it could have been. It could have been, like, Dog Breath or something yeah, like that. Or Ugly. And, and and here is my girlfriend, Pointy Tits. Um, <laughs> hey, that was a, that uh, was I a prefer, big... That was, I prefer Madonna, but, okay? That, that, that was a big deal back then. It wasn't until, like, we got through the 70s that that, that, that stopped being an impressive thing yeah, for people. That, 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 stopped, uh, that stopped becoming a hazard that we had to deal with. Yeah. Well, to be clear, we we uh we respect all body types here at Here's a Guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Of course. Um. Uh. But Jeffrey and Jill would soon start dating shortly <laughs> after that, and after six months, Jill would do the classic uh, signature move. She would drop out of school and move in with Jeffrey after six months. Well, of course. I mean, seventeen. She's almost an old maid. Yeah. Start popping out those kids. Smart. Later, when, when Jeffrey was asked about this, um, basically just like this very hastily moved in of like her dropping out of school, uh, Jeffrey would uh, kind of like equate that to Jill's parents' failing marriage. And basically was like, she just didn't want to be around her parents while they divorced, so she moved in with me. Which, fair enough. Like, fair. Like, I can't fault them. Like, there's not too much of an age difference. Like, I think they're like six years apart. It's like, fair fair um and the couple then would wait till after jill was 18 uh and they would have uh their marriage ceremony a very small marriage ceremony july 29th in 1983 uh but even with new love and marriage marriage bliss uh things were not as easy for jeffrey and jill as they thought that would have been 
the two would be moving constantly, almost yearly, due to issues with landlords. And there, and this is a quote from an article I read: their menagerie, which included dogs and birds. So it was like the worst fucking tenants <laughs> of all time. Yeah, yeah. That it sounds like they were trying to be irritating. <laughs> Uh, to help kind of like facilitate all of this, Jill would work odd jobs for uh, different labs and like kind of like almost like medical pharmaceutical uh, places that would pop up while Jeffrey would pick up jobs as a truck driver before eventually landing a gig that would end up almost cementing his life, his job with the police department in Hoffman Estates in 1986. I gotta gotta start putting these overtime hours in. We're, we're real close to being able to afford a howler monkey. <laughs> Um, yeah, I put that in with the peacocks. They'll love it. <laughs> so while the job with the police department would end up defining Jeffrey later on in life, and we'll get there, the job was not suited for him either. Um, while he was a previous established as a marksman in the military, the police chief said of Jeffrey later on that he lacked common sense. Well. Well, <laughs> look. Yeah. We've all had that said of us of, at one time or another. Uh, and Jeffrey's own family would uh, state later on in interviews that he was soft on criminals and would often feel bad for ruining someone's day after interacting with them. <laughs> I mean, again... This guy was too nice to be a cop. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, obviously, being a, a cop isn't relatable, but just being that way in general is kind of relatable. Yeah. So, needing money, Jeffrey did what all the best guys do, or at least the guys that I ended up researching. He decided to rob a bank. Well, <laughs> there, I mean, there, there's some, there, you know, you need a lot of money. There's yeah. a lot of, there is a lot of money in a bank. <laughs> there's some intuitive sense to that. Yeah. And but I mean, help... if you weren't mean enough to be a cop, <laughs> armed robbery is an interesting pivot. That's all I'm going to say. Hold that thought. Okay. And with the help of his wife and a rather ingenious plan, uh, Jeffrey understood what he had to do. And that's, he had to be good at bank robbing. You need a few things. An ex experience with a firearm, the right equipment to not get caught during the robbery, and the proper equipment to get away with it all. Mm -hmm. So with his previous military experience, which he had established himself as a marksman, his law enforcement experience, while though brief, still introduced him to technology and different... Uh, ways of how the law enforcement works and his wife who offers him an opportunity to do multiple things uh jeff would end up uh developing a plan which would really kind of emphasize exactly how he would go on to operate jeff would steal a car from a nearby mall on the beginning of the day see the employees there would leave their cars for roughly a full shift for about eight hours so if you stole the car in the morning, it could be a very, very long time before that car was reported stolen. Therefore, you have ample time to either break into the car, hotwire, and get away. He also, due to his time in the police academy, had a police scanner in his presence. Which would, oh, of course. Boy. Which would give him the opportunity to track police movements at a moment's notice. Yeah. Not a thing you want a bank robber to have. So at this point, uh, Jeffrey has a couple things. He has essentially a previous supply of guns. He has tools to essentially keep track of the police at all times. And he has his wife as a getaway driver. Now all he needs 
is a way to not be caught as being Jeffrey. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. No. No, 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 no. I don't like where this is going oh, at Jeffrey all. Is gonna, some ideas. Jeffrey is going to don a disguise. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the disguise that Jeffrey decides, ultimately, in his mass amounts of brilliance, is a fake beard. <laughs> okay. I thought and, you were going to go with French maid. I was, yeah, I was going to say little old lady. <laughs> yeah. He was going to try and seduce the money out of the bank tellers. Like, okay. Let me just say this about this guy. If this works, it works. But, like, where's the, where's the, the sport in that? Where's the fun in that? Like, if that's all your, the effort you're going to put in, I don't know. I'm not impressed. Yeah, if you're, if you're not dressed like a clown or a <laughs> butler or something silly. I mean, Jack Shepard would be very disappointed in this guy. I mean, this, so this, this is 1990. I don't remember when John Wayne Gacy is, but I think a clown might be overplayed at this point. Well, it's better than what he was actually doing. So, <laughs> so, so Jeffrey's he's just robbing don- banks now. That's a step up. Yeah, a, uh, a clown with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Jeffrey now donning his disguise of a fake beard and sunglasses, uh, takes a gun and immediately walks into a local bank, aiming a gun at the teller, demanding money, showing his police scanner, and essentially telling to the teller, uh, "If I hear that you alert the cops, I'm shooting you in the fucking face right now." So, fake beard and sunglasses. So, he was disguised as a member of ZZ Top. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey... You think this man stays sharp dressed for free? I, I was going to say the, the, the guy from um, the Sesame Street bit, the one who says Menomina. <laughs> Did that guy have sunglasses? That's how I remember him. But maybe, that, maybe I'm yeah, wrong. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, Jeffrey then jumps in his stolen car, which he would uh, later identify a pattern for picking a car, uh, which I'll say now. Essentially, he would pick a Japanese model car because, for whatever reason, he found those easier to hotwire and steal. Uh, and also, they generally tended to be more muted colors, so they were easily like kind of blending in with modern cars. But he would take uh, a Mazda or a similarly Japanese car, he would drive far enough away, ditch the car, and then be picked up by his wife awaiting in a van to take them back and reap the rewards. And this is the birth of what would haunt Chicago for 22 months. The Bearded Bandit. Really? (laughs) Come on. Of course. Come how on! Many rabbis, how many rabbis got beat up because of that? Do you think? <laughs> I was going to say, I really, how really... Has, how many Hasidic Jews were terrorized? I really hope this guy did not do the obvious offensive accent that, that could go along with this. <laughs> I mean, he, he's from Chicago, and he's robbing Chicago banks. I imagine there's quite a bit of, like, playing up your Chicago in all of this. He's sure. just doing John Lovitz as Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which is a wonderful sketch if you've which, never seen it. Hanukkah Harry robbing a bank. I believe that would go a little something. Like no, I'm not <laughs> no, not that stupid. So so let's let's break down nineteen ninety real quick. January 9th, nineteen ninety, uh, Jeffrey robs his first bank. It takes place at the first nationwide bank in uh 
will matter. I'm going to butcher all of these uh, Chicago suburbs. Uh, if you're really mad about it, uh, just at the Gmail, because I don't read those. Uh, going to get a bunch of fucking just a just a string of emails <laughs> just from Mitch. Mitch. It's <laughs> Mitch with like seven Mitch. burners. Mitch just sending me <laughs> Mitch just emailing me pictures of guns. <laughs> so his first bank he robs in a Google in Street view of your house <laughs> for some reason. Well, he's even worse. He's been here. Yeah, yeah Mitch has been to my house too. Fuck. So January 9th, nineteen ninety, he robs his first bank with the help of his wife. He then robs another bank on March fifth, nineteen ninety, the Savings of America Bank in Chicago. A third bank, May seventeenth, nineteen ninety, the Tallman Home Federal Savings and Loan in Libertyville. A fourth bank, June eighth, nineteen ninety, the National Bank of Detroit in Skokie. A fifth bank. September 20th, a 6th bank, November 15th, a 7th bank, February 4th of 1991. Him and his wife have a perfect plan of being unrecognizable, ditching the car that they're stealing because no one knows it's been stolen, and getting away by this point. Yeah, this genuinely is a pretty solid plan. Like, they've got most of their bases covered, it seems like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And at this point, because they're essentially robbing several communities outside of the greater Chicago area, like, there's no collective effort to figure out what the fuck's going on. It's a please tell me ingenious that plan. The, please tell me that around the holiday season he made it a white fake beard. <laughs> <laughs> and thus we have... He took all the money in a big burlap sack. <laughs> and thus we have the story of the Santa Stealer. Uh, no, he did, as far as I could read, he did not do that. Uh, but also, he took from November fifteenth to February fourth. He took he took the holidays off, which I can appreciate. I can appreciate that. Uh, but after There's the seventh, so much to do, I mean, you yeah. got to arrange Thanksgiving. Yeah. You got to find out who's having yeah. Christmas. You got to get Look, shopping done. <laughs> that last two months of the year is a blur. No one has time to do anything planned. Uh, but essentially, these jobs are lucrative enough that Jeffrey and Jill are able to take that money and turn it into their real passion. Opening a bookstore. That's not the worst thing you could do with a bunch of stolen cash, I guess. But also, you have these armed bank robbers who are threatening people's lives, going, I want to open a Borders. Yeah, these, these why two is, are like... Why is the window display crime and punishment next to a <laughs> winky face emoji? Between this and, like, the pet birds, like, these two are the most bespoke armed <laughs> robbers I've ever heard of in my entire life. Like They have a very if, twee outlook on crime. If if they didn't, if everything that I read didn't point to the exact cars they were stealing, I pictured, like, the big wheel bicycle, where it's, like, the big wheel in the front and the tiny wheels in the back, and they're just hipsters robbing banks. I mean, this is the 90s. You know they were <laughs> listening to fucking Pavement on the way home from... <laughs> Some old Velvet Underground yes. demos. <laughs> so at this point, the couple is also getting enough money that they're able to buy a house in Hanover Park, putting down $22,000 on an $86,000 home. And just because I hate the housing market, I looked it up. Those houses now, 30 years later, are going for about 300000 Yeah. And that's not even the worst inflation I've heard of. Yeah. yeah. It's not it, good, though. But I wanted to see how, like hoity this neighborhood in chicago was which you know it could get worse but like still like a pretty big markup but also they're putting down a fourth in cash liquid that's insane 
enough that when like when talking to the realtor, Jeffrey basically kind of like eased his realtor's like concerns and said, and this is an exact quote from the realtor later on, uh, that Jeffrey was in business for himself and money was no problem. Which is oh, the most well, red that, well, flag dropping the most red flag dropping shit that you can tell somebody when they're like, Hey, do you have twenty thousand in cash? And you're like, Money's no issue. I make my own yeah. money. He he has, he uh he got me to not worry about it by saying, and I quote, "Don't worry about it." Yeah. Oh well, all of my problems are secured now. But all of this essentially, for Jeffrey and Jill, has gone off without a hitch, and all of this would kind of come to a very very first abrupt reality check, November fourth, nineteen ninety one. The police are out, and I'm going to preface this now. It's in my notes later to say this. Some of the information that I got was watching a really, 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 really shitty um, FBI-produced, like, crime ID bullshit 45-minute made-for-TV special. So some oh, of the details that I have like saw, I won't repeat them because they're not repeated anywhere else. Uh, but the I will say this. The one thing that I saw in this... Uh, fucking cop propaganda bullshit that I watched just to get a little bit of base information before I fully research this. Said that this cop was doing a ride-along while this happened. Nothing else I ever saw repeats this information. <laughs> um, but a cop notices that a car with expired plates is driving uh, by a man wearing a fake beard. Um, so the cop so he does... recognized that the beard was fake. Um, from what I read in a Chicago Tribune article, which I find a little bit more credible, it said a man driving a car with a fake beard. Um, Nothing uh, illegal about that. Yeah, the cop then runs the plates, uh, notices that the plates are uh, reported stolen, and decides to pull over this car because, one, the plates are expired, and two, that car is 100% stolen. Um, yeah, as you the, do. The cop then attempts to pull over the suspect. That suspect then slams on the brakes leaps out of the car with an automatic rifle and begins firing at the squad car. God damn. <laughs> Zero to 60 in no time at all. The bearded well, man... Now or never. The, the bearded we'll man have to fired... kiss that Barnes & Noble goodbye, honey. <laughs> that bearded man fired a burst of shots, three of which hitting the car, one of which ended up hitting and wounding the officer, uh, Kevin Mayer, striking him in the shoulder. Thus officially putting the bearded bandit on the police's radar of, hey, we should actually fucking focus on this now. See, what he should have done was then just grown a real beard so no one would be able to recognize him. Because they're looking for a guy with a fake beard. It'll be like the end of that uh, I Love Lucy uh, Christmas special where they finally go to pull the beard. Yeah, that is a very low percentage reference, admittedly. But yeah. To, to add one more low percentage reference, uh, it's it's to bring it back to pro wrestling one more time. It's every time that Sting is hiding in the crowd in a wrestling match, yeah. he's wearing he's wearing a fake Sting mask. So he'll take off the fake Sting mask to reveal he's actually still Sting. <laughs> I think there's a one of my favorite bits of all time. There's a similar drill tweet to that as well, but I'll um, leave it there. So the police now take all of this information uh, about this man who essentially has been kind of terrorizing a wide circle around Chicago, and they're able to build an expansive profile, 
Federal agents are now involved, and seven local suburban departments uh, with the federal agents create a task force, and they start staking out what they're able to understand is bland-looking Japanese cars near banks. And they're just staking out this exact profile of a car, because this is the exact car that is end up reported stolen and found right after a bank robbery has happened, and they're like, all right, we know this much by pooling all of our information. That's that's a lot, though. I mean, in any city, yeah. there are going to be a lot of those. Yes. Um, this information doesn't become immediately helpful, as the eighth bank robbery will take place on November 18th in 1991, as the first bank of Chicago... I'm sorry, first Chicago bank in Elk Grove Village is robbed in the exact same manner that has happened seven previous times. The same bank? Oh uh, no! It's it's so it's it's eight different banks, which has essentially been eight different chains, but the exact same situation has happened every time. A fake bearded man has come in wielding a gun mm-hmm. while holding a police scanner, threatening the tellers, leaving, driving away in a Japanese car, and that Japanese car is then found miles later. All of these have essentially been the exact same crime, just spread way the fuck out. Wonder if that's the. I wonder if that's who had the Subaru we talked about in the opening segment. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's 100% a bank robber. Also, what if it's what if like the same teller just keeps retaking jobs <laughs> and it's, it's it's the same one every time? Look, oh, oh look. no! First Chicago Bank has been bullshit. I'm going, I'm going up to Naperville. I'm not getting robbed in Naperville. Okay. Two months later, he's robbed in Naperville. <laughs> he sees the beard. He sees the bearded guy walk in. He just doesn't even change his expression. Reaches down, grabs a bag of money, and hands it to him. Here, we don't have to do this again. Just fucking take it. So the police and the feds would end up getting their first real big break. Uh, December fifteenth, nineteen ninety one. Two stol- two stolen cars in Schaumburg, in a parking lot near a bank, are identified as stolen and Japanese. It's crazy how this would happen. So what they do is they're like, look, this is too obvious to just ignore. We have to actually do our jobs. And what they do is they take part of their task force and they just stake out these two cars. And they're like, these fit every description that we possibly know about this. We have to watch this. And within a few days, Jeffrey Erickson is caught preparing for his next job. He is caught red-handed, hot-wiring the Mazda by the agents who have been scoping out this car. And what could have easily been, like, written off as just, like, a carjacking, Jeffrey has a bag with him. That bag contains two loaded guns, a fake beard, but also conveniently, and weirdly enough, two fake mustaches. That is weird. Well, you just couldn't decide what he wanted to go for that day, or...? Look, I've been the I've been the beard bandit for a long time. What if I was the mustache bandit? Am I a guy who can pull off being the mustache bandit? Look, it's Movember. Yeah, so, he, he robs he robs a bank and donates all the money to charity <laughs> cancer research. Modern day Robin Hood, I like it. So, um, because obviously Jeffrey Erickson is preparing for a job, his his wife Jill is not very far off. And they find Jill in a van, like, very, very close by. Um, and the feds approach Jill in the van as well. Uh, Jill then tries to make a very quick escape. She then leads police on a very high-speed chase through Hanover Park, 
totaling an 11 totaling over 11 miles reaching speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour which is impressive considering that she's essentially in a fucking minivan yeah she's she's doing work here the entire time jill is firing gunshots back at the police god wow damn girl well, fuck with my uh, kettle yeah the uh the police obviously are returning fire and after about 11 miles, the gunshots stop. There seems to be an eerie quiet. The van comes to a stop. And the police notice in the front seat a very, very dead Jill. Um, noticing blood coming from her head. Uh, but very, very interestingly, the police report this as a self-inflicted gun wound. Um, which, no, I think is wrong yeah all, all, always yeah best to just assume that's true when the cops tell you it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound they have no history of lying about that whatsoever so um jill the picture that they paint is that like in the panic of everything jill's gun discharged and she killed herself whether intentionally or accidentally they don't really go in further to say but but Jeffrey's wife is now dead. Uh, while Jeffrey is now in police custody. Bad day. Uh, um, and now, now Jeffrey um, going to trial. Again, he could have probably easily got off with a really good lawyer on just carjacking. But he had bank robbing supplies with him. So it's not looking great for him. No, I shouldn't that. have labeled that bag bank robbing supplies. <laughs> So on uh, February 12th, 1992, Jeff is indicted on federal charges for the eight bank robberies. And also, they end up getting him on state charges for shooting at that cop in the previous November and wounding him. Yeah, yeah, you can't do that. So we finally go to trial in July of 92. Uh, during several trial witness uh, witnesses, they come forward uh, from the various banks. When it turns out when you rob eight banks, you get a couple witnesses. And most of them ID Jeff. Uh, but funnily enough, one bank employee, when asked to ID the gunman in the room, pointed to a Chicago Tribune reporter, which I find <laughs> funny. <laughs> Maybe he um, did that one. <laughs> and coincidentally enough, the officer who was shot by Jeff also couldn't identify him. Yeah, well, he had a beard and like the dude just got shot. But so. all the other bank tellers who saw the man with the beard also identified him, though. So That's there were, true. There were two outliers in the whole thing, which I just thought were funny and were noted in a lot of articles, which was like, you know, for some reason, they couldn't pin it on the bearded guy. Yeah, that's weird. Um, however, this little lapse in evidence isn't enough to clear Jeff's name entirely, as it turns out, shell casings from one of the crime scenes where Jeff shot that cop, as it turns out, match shell casings that were in Jeff's home as well, uh, further cementing that, yeah, no, Jeff Erickson fucking did all this shit. <laughs> and on July 20th, uh, Jeff is being escorted out of the courtroom uh, in Dirksen Federal Building, uh, and while walking with two federal agents, Jeff does something. It's not exactly sure how this happened, but Jeff manages to get a handcuff key and, unlock, and unlocks his own handcuffs. 
Jeff then wrestles away, uh, wrestles away a gun from a U.S. Marshal and then shoots and kills Roy Fracas. Then, um, I, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It's F-R-A-K-E-S. So it's either Frakes or Fracas. Frakes. Frakes? Uh, be Frakes. Okay. But, but I, I will choose to believe it's Roy Fracas because that is a great name. It, it, I, I wanted it to be that name. <laughs> Jeff then gets in a shootout in this parking garage where he's let himself free with marshals and security for the garage. This guy Jeff, really did not want to go to prison. He didn't. And at that point, he'd also been kind of noting in, in interviews, in like, not interviews, I'm sorry. He'd been interviewed and kind of like talked to people, but in articles it had said that he like thought the security was pretty lax overall for what he had done. <laughs> Um, and Jeff then shoots and kills the security guard, Harry, and I'm going to butcher the shit out of this last name, Bellomini, B-E-L-L-U-O-M-I-N-I. Yeah, couldn't exactly tell you what that is either. Uh, but Harry ends up returning fire as well, and ends up hitting Jeff four times. Jeff then, while still escaping, goes further into the garage. And again, this is where I have to hold my suspension of disbelief. And according to police reports, Jeff shoots himself in the head. Which, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but he seemed to have plenty of fight and spirit before that. Like... Yes. One, one article that I read had mentioned that Harry had shot him fatally. And that Jeff decided he was going to die anyway and took his own life, which I still disagree with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems kind of uh, redundant, yes. first of all. So, I, I legitimately think that the police were like, fuck both of these people and shot both of them. Which... Well, they did shoot at a cop earlier. That kind of tracks with how yeah. police view that kind of thing. And honestly, for having for Jeff having five bullet holes in him, that's not... As bad as we'll see in history. Yeah. Uh, witnesses later, when hearing about this, because this happened at like 5.30 in the fucking afternoon after court, witnesses were said that they could hear about nine shots happening, which cracks about with the number of shots that are in people. Yeah. Um, but this would end up leading us to the end of Jeffrey Erickson, better known as the fake beard bandit, a man who terrorized Chicago for about 22 months before ultimately taking the lives of a couple people and himself. And I just got to say, honestly, he was an okay bank robber. He was just stupid. <laughs> well, he was stupid after a, after a point. Yeah. It seemed like he, he, he was pretty sharp, and then he, he icarus himself, like a lot of our guys yeah. tend to do. Like, him and his wife had the house, they had the bookstore, they could have stopped. And yeah. it would have worked out. But he kept stealing Japanese cars with a fake beard, and he got <laughs> caught. Um, Kids, pretty... <laughs> don't go down the path of wearing fake beards and stealing Japanese automobiles. Which brings me to my big question to you guys. I didn't tell you it ahead of time because I didn't want to give away who exactly Jeffrey was. My big question to you, the fake beard, smart disguise or stupid disguise? So. Again, remember, he was identifiable by most people who saw him. Yeah. 
So I'm going to go with stupid because it seems like this was a bad fake beard. If it were a good enough fake beard that people who saw you didn't realize you were wearing a fake beard, that's a pretty good disguise. Because, I mean, you know, that's going to definitely create a sizable difference in your appearance. But if it's obviously a fake beard, they just bring you in for the lineup, put a fake beard on you, and there you are. (laughs) And they're going to know to do that. So, yeah, I'm going to go with dumb. I the way I'm gonna put this, it's less stupid than I would have expected, but at the end of the day, still stupid. I mean, he he took this further than I ever would have expected, but yeah. you know, at, at, the end of, at, the, at the end of the day, I mean, the fact that it was not a better disguise it was essentially his downfall. So um, I think I think you have to call it stupid, but I, I will give him credit is the the way that he used it was was smarter than I would have I would have thought. I, I agree. I think I think it was smart until he went to that well too many times, and then it was stupid. Yeah, he should have switched yeah. switched up the game a little bit. Yeah. At some I point. mean, he, he had fake mustaches. He just wasn't using them. Well, uh, there are things like masks. There are also a shitload <laughs> of other cars you could have stolen. Like, oh, so from from what I read, he would steal Japanese cars and like Mazda specifically because it was easy to break into them and to remove the ignition from them. He would then shove like a screwdriver in that ignition hole, put a paper towel or a cloth over the like the gear shift and the uh, the screwdriver, and then be able to start and manually adjust the car that way. Yeah, but so, for whatever reason, Japanese cars but, were easier to do that with. I mean, if you want to keep robbing banks, you got to keep like you got to keep training. It's just like an yeah. athlete; like nobody, you got you got to get better at stealing cars. I'm just saying, do a Volkswagen once, branch out, German engineering. All right. Which famously has only been good for humanity. <laughs> wow. Well, what a what an episode that was. Um, hopefully you all had as good a time as we did. So let's wrap this thing up the way we always do. Uh, first of all, by hawking all of our shit. Um, Cody, how about you? Let, let, let's start with you. Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Son of Gravy for 2069. Uh, you can find me weekly here on Here's a Guy on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And also on a fun little Twitch channel that the three of us and our good friends Pookie and Kelsey have started playing some Dungeons and Dragons called Here's an Adventure. That's uh, twitch.tv slash Here's an Adventure. We are having a ton of fun, so everyone please come check us out. Uh, Watch all of our socials, and we will keep you updated (coughs) on when we'll be there. Uh, Also, the VOD should still be up, so check those out. All right, Jack John, how about yourself? Find me on Twitter at Jose. Find me on my own Twitch channel, uh, Games. Find me at Gen Con, Indianapolis, first weekend of August. Uh, come at me. Let's talk about some weird guys together in person. That's right. That's um, right. And, of course, find me on Belchcast, a very special episode coming out soon, uh, which is where Pookie and I talk about beer and nerd shit. And, of course, on Here's an Adventure as well. Right on. Well, for me, I'll, I'll ditto what everyone else said about Here's an Adventure. Um, additionally, you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. Um, follow the podcast account as well at Here's a Guy Pod. Uh, I did retweet the um, uh, Richard Petty uh, <laughs> pepper and mayonnaise sandwich picture, um, and you, you uh, if, if you want to see that, which you do, trust me, um, so go check that out. Um, we also have a Gmail account. At, that's uh, Here's a Mailbox at gmail.com. Hit us up. Uh, if we like it enough, which we usually do, uh, we will read it on air. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Um 
Cody, do you have a tagline for us this week? I do. All right, sounds good. Well, thanks again, everybody, for being here. We hope to have you join us again next week. And to take us home, Cody, hit us with that tagline. Remember, kids, don't put on fake beards and steal Japanese cars. Grow real, grow real beards and steal Italian cars. Good night, Bye, everybody. Daddy.